Welcome to the Parker Avery Group's podcast series, Talk Retail to Me, where we offer insights and realistic advice from experts in the retail and consumer brands industries. The goal of this series is to provide our listeners with two to three pragmatic pieces of advice in each episode that they can immediately go out and employ in their companies. If you're new to Parker Avery and this podcast, we are a leading retail and consumer goods consulting firm with over 600 years of collective experience both as consultants as well as leadership positions in the industry. Our firm uniquely combines deep industry experience with consulting expertise and world-class talent to deliver meaningful results. Our approach allows us to build successful, long-term relationships with some of the most recognizable retail and consumer brands in the world. If you're interested in learning more about the Parker Avery Group, we invite you to visit www.parkeravery.com. In this episode, Solving Both Sides of the Inventory Problem, Parker Avery experts Clay Parnell, Amanda Astrologo, and Rob Oglesby, along with myself, Trisha Gustin, are going to talk about some lessons learned and best practices that have emerged over the past few months in how retailers are handling the huge swings in demand and inventory movements that we've witnessed across all segments of retail. Well, now that we seem to be mostly grounded in emerging from the recent disruptions, yet demand is still highly in flux. What do you what do you see as some of the success stories of how retailers are handling demand? Well, there's certainly been a lot of disruption and distortion, so you're not kidding there. And obviously, it's been different for the essential retail versus apparel and fashion and, and non-essential. Uh, on the grocery and essential side, you know they've had to just continue at a breakneck pace on, on numerous fronts, you know, handling the demand, handling out of stocks, just trying to keep up with their supply chain and, and what I'll just call irrational consumer behavior. But they've, they've come around and they've been very successful. On the non-essential side, I think some of the successes that I'll, I'll note is many retailers quickly, very quickly rolling out new omni-channel capabilities that they didn't have before. Uh, obviously, especially the curbside pickup, the whole curbside supply chain is, is a thing now, and it, and it won't be going away anytime soon. And they have improvement opportunities there. Uh, I've tried several of the curbside pickups over the last couple of months, um, and the pickups have actually worked well. I tried a curbside return that was uh, unfortunately fairly painful, but I'm, I'm not going to really knock anybody, though, because I know everybody's been trying hard to do the best job they can. Uh, And again, some of these folks rolled out things just very quickly and scrappy that they simply had no intention of rolling out uh, this year just a few months ago. So, you know, that's definitely been successful. I think the other piece that's outside of curbside and just the supply chain delivery is really around the customer service. I think, you know, as people start to serve more on websites and e-commerce, you know, we're all used to those little chat buttons popping up that say, hey, can I help you? I think those have become more prominent. I think they've become easier to use via text or an online virtual chat, whereas before it was, please call this number, and then hopefully you won't sit on hold for a while. But I think most people have gone to a chat aspect of that. They've become, for those that didn't have it, they started to pop up more frequently and be under development. So, you know, as Clay alluded to, the curbside may have had some hiccups and some people may have done it quickly and still have some things to work on. I think the same thing applies to the customer service aspect of it. They're trying, and I think that those will continue to evolve, and I think that'll make people step out of their comfort zone a little bit more than they had in the past from a development standpoint. 
Yeah, and I, you know, kind of adding to some of that, you know, obviously there was a curbside, there was the, the significant change in store operations uh, that was necessary, you know, with regards to reducing hours, doing all the cleaning, having special hours for the at-risk, you know, customer base and so forth. You know, that more so in the, the essential retailers. For the non-essentials with, you know, all that disposable income with the layoffs that came in uh, just disappearing, obviously the demand went away, but you did see a fair amount of kind of what I'll call intelligent promotional activity that a lot of those non-essential or potentially non-essential retailers went, you know, especially some of the sporting goods retailers like like Under Armour and Nike, uh, really leveraging their their services very effectively uh, with regards to, you know, their workout apps and so forth and tying that into product sales. Um, you know, I recently saw some, some statistics that Nike is now 70 to 80% of their their sales are really coming from online channels as opposed to, to, to the traditional retailers. So, you know, I think those those guys keeping themselves afloat by getting their share of the wallet, even with a, uh, a huge reduction in overall spend, especially in their areas, was, uh, was another kind of telling success story. Yeah, I think that's all great. Um, I've definitely, in my own personal habits, have, have taken advantage of some, some buy online, pick up in store, and um, some of the promotions that retailers have have put out there for, for just regular consumers, you know, being solely on this consumer side, it's just interesting to see all the dynamics in play and, and how that's panning out. Any new best practices you've seen in, in managing the inventory side of it and the customer fulfillment from, from different shopping channels? From a best practice perspective, I would say, I think one of the things we've seen come out of that is people have developed processes to keep them flexible, right? They have to be able to move and shake. They have to be able to change their path pretty quickly, um, whether that means by store region, how they allocate, whether that means how many meetings they're having to make more strategic decisions. I think people from a best practice perspective have really started to think about, can we sustain this? What are the processes they need to change or adapt in order to keep the sustainability, make sure that not only their associates don't get frustrated, but their customers as well, right? So the retailer's not taking returns versus the retailer's taking returns. Or what are the type of customer service scenarios that everyone's going to have and how do they adapt to those? So I think that there's the flexibility factor in the best practices is something that we're going to continue to see evolve. I don't think it can no, it's no longer going to be this is a leading practice and everyone needs to go from point A to B right? There's going to be some sideways turns and there's going to need to be some adaptability to that. Yeah, I think along the lines of flexibility, there's the accessibility. So a lot of these uh, retailers, when they shut their doors all together, I mean, completely shut them down, total, totally dark store, they had all that inventory stuck, whether you call it omni-channel capabilities or whatever, but literally getting in and being more creative and more flexible about how do I get to the inventory to fulfill demand. You know, so for instance, I ordered uh, some, some products from Nordstrom, probably in April, I guess it was, and it all came out of stores. So it was shipped out of stores. And those stores were inevitably dark at the time, but they had associates in the stores picking this uh, because they had those capabilities. And I think, you know, what we're seeing is a lot of our clients didn't really have the capabilities. They put it together with the duct tape and bailing wire, and now they've got to think, how do I do this more sustainable in the future? Um, so I think that's going to be one of the, the key things is first off, inventory has to be 
uh, accessible. Just period the end has to be accessible to, you know, to the retailer, regardless of where it is, so that there's a match to, to the demand. Yeah, I would say flexibility across the supply chain, flexibility in how retailers are ordering in the future, looking at their vendor base, looking at their lead times, you know, all of those things have been built up the last decade or so to be as lean and efficient as possible, which is great from an you know initial cost standpoint, but when there are hiccups in the supply chain or you can't get to certain inventory, whether it's in a DC, a fulfillment center, a store, et cetera, it, it certainly shows some glaring gaps and challenges. So I think in the future, we're gonna see retailers looking at things so that they can essentially be prepared to address contingencies as they may happen. I think the other thing that we're seeing from retailers that we're working with and talking to is, is they're really taking a step back and questioning certain activities, you know, whether it's part of their calendar uh, or part of the, just everything they do on a, a daily, weekly basis and, and you know, making sure that they're only looking at things that are value adding, that are contributing to a process. And just because they've always done it a certain way doesn't mean they need to continue doing it a certain way because they're having to activate things in their processes with a leaner team. Some of them are doing things while they still have part of their team on furlough. Uh, so, you know, s- uh, smaller teams are wearing multiple hats and, and just that in itself has been challenging for, for many of our clients. Yeah, it's interesting how this inventory issue of this highly fluctuating demand across all segments has ripple effects throughout the organization. And as we move into, and I know this phrase is questioned the new normal because i don't know that we're going to see any kind of normal anytime soon to be honest back to what amanda said and and rob underpinned that we all need to be way more flexible than in the past and that the old norms are pretty much thrown out that they're not relevant just simply not relevant Yeah. yeah that's very true i mean especially given the fact that you know we've got four states at least uh from what i saw in the news, I mean, you know, that are now in reversal, my, my state included, you know, less on the retail side of things, but, you know, it's really kind of hitting the restaurant business more so bars, of course, and things like that. But, you know, the reality is, is what they, what was learned in April is going to need to be sustainable going forward. So if we have to close things down, you know, again, that accessibility has got to be there. The other part, I mean, I think as people learn from a best practice perspective, it's, Along the lines of flexibility, how do you start to roll things out? And at the same time, what's the best practice if you need to roll them back? The customer is going to need, she still wants a seamless process, right? There's only going to be so long that the customer is going to react to, well, it's a COVID problem. Making sure that the customer is continuing to be, needs are continuing to be met and that it is seamless and, and less painful. I think if you create processes that make things more challenging, even during this time of pandemic, they're going to be less likely to return. So you have to figure out whether it's a communication strategy, total customer service in the store, how things get shifted, how things get returned. But all of those things need to be thought through of customer first and how to make sure that they remain loyal customers to you. So the best practices are not only how to you know, just get the retailer through it, but how is it to make sure that that consumer demand continues to be sustained and with you through the end of it? 
Yeah, one of the things that I think we've also seen uh, from a demand standpoint is retailers uh, reacting differently or planning differently from a pricing and promotion standpoint. You know, everybody said initially once they open, their, you know, everything's going to be on, you know, the biggest fire sale of the year when people are trying to clear out their inventory. And based on what I've seen, you're just not seeing that. Yes, a lot of retailers are having discounts. Yes, there are some markdowns, but I think you're seeing a combination of a couple of other factors. Uh, one, for those retailers that are more than stable, that have a little bit more liquidity, they're actually deciding some of the inventory they're just going to sit on, you know, whether it's for a season or until, or until next year. Um, and then others, I think, are realizing, you know what, they, they, they canceled a lot of orders. So their incoming flow is, is going to be a trickle in the next few months compared to what it was. So they, they're realizing some of the inventory they've got now actually needs to last longer than it would have otherwise. And then finally, you've got those that are just more resistant to, uh, you know, to kill their margins. So there's a lot of, a lot of variation from a, a pricing and promotion standpoint across the, the landscape. As far as different retail segments, so we, you know, we do a lot of work in, you know, grocery and apparel and, you know, across the, across the spectrum, but how can we talk about some ways inventories impact across these different retail segments and maybe considerations or learnings that could be transcended across them? Yeah, a couple of days ago, I read a Wall Street Journal article uh, talking about primarily grocery, but it wasn't just grocery. It was it was even in the motorcycles and stuff like that. And what they were saying is skew rationalization. So, you know, Kimberly Clark going down from offering or actually a retailer that's buying from a Kimberly Clark or, or somebody like that for toilet paper from 30 different varieties down to one or two. And obviously the play there is you can streamline manufacturing when you're when you've got one of those products that you know went through the the panic buy, and it makes a lot of sense. I, I think that you know in that segment that's what we're going to see is that skew rationalization because it's like the variety really isn't that important. It's more important to be able to to react to uh, immediate spikes in demand to be able to ramp up or at least maintain a a, a manufacturing line going. But on the other side of things, you know, with regards to fashion. You know, that's a bit of a dangerous play because obviously the deeper you go into a high fashion product, if you've got a dog in your hands, then you're sitting on a lot of that dog. And unfortunately, Clay just mentioned that, you know, the resilience or, or resistance to markdowns, well, that inventory has got to go away somehow. So it's I think, not getting better with age, is it? Exactly. Yeah, it's not like fine wine. But, uh, you know, but, but the flip side is for them, I, I think, you know, and again, Clay, you just mentioned it as well the flexibility in the supply chain itself. So back in, in January, when, when we thought it was a manufacturing problem, um, when we didn't think product was going to come through the supply chain because factories were closed over in Asia and primarily China, you know, the, the worry was, you know, what's going to happen in my fall season because I'm not going to have product. And then you hit, now what, what am I going to do with the product that's in spring season? You know, and in my mind, this kind of points to some of the glaring holes and some of the challenges that, that exist in, especially in the fashion area where IMU is king. You know, if everything is about cost and IMU, I mean, face it, it's fashion initial markup is not going to be final gross margin. And unless we start looking at that and, and driving uh, some flexibility, in, and how the supply chain works, then that's where I think there's some key, key long-term opportunities. It's not short-term, but it's longer-term. 
But imagine if you had a three-month supply chain versus a six to nine-month supply chain. Those are the kinds of capabilities that I, I sort of see you know, are going to be mission critical and things that, that you know, a lot of our clients are going to really start to have to think about. You know, how do I near source? How do I close source? How do I change the way I get raw materials? Um, again, this is not a turn on a dime type of thing, unfortunately, but these are the kind of considerations that you know, this pandemic is absolutely exposed. I think that's a great point. I think it's, you know, it's all about staying fluid. So whether you're talking about markdowns and sourcing, I think people are going to have to start thinking about how do you make evaluations of your merchandise quicker, right? So you can't sit on it. So if, people, if you're currently used to taking markdowns once a month or once a quarter or once a season, that may not be enough. And you may need to change how your buying cycle is and when you go to market and who you talk to. You know, I think it's it's definitely going to be about making sure that that inventory is constantly moving, that when she does come in, because the visits could get less frequent, right? A lot of people are looking at their frequency of traffic, whether it means you're because your store has to close or your store is open or just because of just consumer fear, that frequency is, is not going to happen as, as much as they would like. So making sure that every time she does come in, she's seeing something fresh that's there to go, whether that means it's on markdown fresh or it's just a new product mix fresh. Um, we have to continue to stay fluid. So I think, you know, changing the way you think about product flow, store, where it is in the store, store movement, store labor, all of that is definitely going to come into play that people just need to stay fluid. And it's not a, it can't be a hard rule, both cross-functional from a store operations supply chain and and merchandise planning are all going to have to work together because that's something that they're just going to have to continually turn on. Yeah, I think tied into that is, you know, if, if people thought that they knew their consumer well and thought they understand their consumer journey and how she shopped before, you know, all of that is, has shifted and shifted dramatically. So, you know, we're, we're working with clients right now in both fashion and, and in grocery that are really trying to figure out how do, how do I better sense what our demand is and what it's, what it's going to be. And how do I make sure I've got one common demand signal to Amanda's point on, on everybody pulling together? How do I have one common demand signal that's, that's driving uh, all of my actions and decisions? And, you know, a lot of people are realizing some of their tool investments that they had thought about, you know, maybe for a year or two out, you know, they need sooner. That doesn't mean they're going to do a big IT or systems project right now. But they may want to do something fairly, you know, low risk, probably data analytics driven and demand forecasting and, and something around analytics is at the top of the list for, for a number of folks we're talking to right now. You know, just tying it all together and making sure that everyone's on the same page as far as what are the KPIs everyone's looking at. So if the store operations team hears that merchandising is losing two ticks off their inventory turnover, they know something's coming their way. I think it's making sure that everyone's moving in the same direction. Everyone is in line of what the drivers are, what are the triggers, and what are the levers that everybody has to pull. So it's not just going to be, it can't be a siloed activity. And I think that that for a lot of organizations, I mean, we have a few clients that we've worked with over the years that are extremely siloed and they come together only a few times a year to really discuss anything. I think if anybody's really learned anything through this is that those silos have to come down and they have to continually work together to keep everything moving. It's an interesting, you know, hearing about the silo conversation, because I feel like we've been talking about that for a long time, even before COVID. And all of a sudden it's become this even bigger priority. How do you start? 
you just got to keep driving the conversation and, and making sure everybody's being held accountable for collaborating. Um, I think one of the things that's driving it is is the heightened focus on, on everything omni-channel because that starts to drive very different conversations, as Amanda noted, across all of the different functional areas, and they all have to be in sync. If, if people did not have as much from an omni-channel capability before, they could get away with it, but omni-channel just has tentacles uh, into and across every every functional area. So merchandising stores, marketing, supply chain, you know, everybody has to be, you know, much more fully engaged with each other. It's its absolutely critical. Yeah, and I think on top of that too, Clay, you know, going back to what Amanda said about KPIs, aligning those is a big deal. You know, getting everybody on the same page, marching to the same end goal. In my mind, I, what, that's one of the things I've seen, you know, with our clients over the years and even, you know, back to my days in industry is, the KPI that, that existed didn't necessarily drive the right behavior. So, you know, you're, you're incented to do something or you were being held accountable to do something that wasn't necessarily the best thing for the entire company. And I think that's one of the, the things that needs to be looked at pretty heavily is how do I make sure that there's fewer KPIs that have alignment ultimately are that are getting all the groups to work together because there's the common goal is a measured outcome so to speak that that uh, everybody's got a, a, a part of as opposed to being individualized yeah and it's really almost a small business mentality across a larger organization i mean we've seen a lot of small businesses you know we hear that word pivot a lot but they've pivoted and they've figured it out because this is their survival mode. And and to a large extent, larger organizations really need to have some of that mentality in play to be collaborative, to be, you know, break down a lot of those barriers. I think that's really an interesting dynamic that's happened. As far as other things retailers can learn, are there things that can be quickly, fairly quickly employed in operations that help ease the strain on the merchants and store operations and those organizations? I was going to say, I think it's, you know, it kind of comes back to the KPI conversation and don't sweat the small stuff, right? I think a lot of people get caught in all the readouts and the reports and analysis paralysis, if you will. Being able to move quick, really streamline what everyone's looking at so that the merchants are not caught up in three days of analysis to do a half hour worth of work or a half hour meeting just to report up. I think that's that's a big thing. And I think people have learned that. I think hopefully meetings are becoming more efficient just because can't have long meetings on a on a virtual call tend not to work so well so i think you know just out of pure necessity things have become a little bit more pointed i think the more people can streamline and simplify and get to the point more quickly so that it's more action oriented that's definitely a, a win moving forward yeah i think it's amazing that you know you see you know, some of our clients that literally didn't have capabilities, you know, three, four months ago that somehow, way, shape or form stood those things up, you know, whether it was the uh, uh, BOPIS, uh, curbside delivery, those kinds of capabilities in particular, um, you know, and it gets that, down to that flexibility of being able to, you know, gain access to the inventory, be able to match the supply with the demand, you know, the inventory with that demand, whether it was shipping out of the store um, or offering, you know, the, the pickup on, alongside the curb, um, if the store was, you know, on, you know, couldn't be open legally to a, you know, to a customer and so forth. So I think what it really boils down to is, is that 
having that flexibility, which is obviously something we've said, all of us have said, uh, you know, throughout this entire conversation is really critical and, and being able to ultimately have access to inventory because it's everywhere, being able to, uh, to make sure that that's, that's available. Um, you know, and ultimately starting to replace what was put together with, you know, just really a lot of grit with those things that are going to be more sustainable in the future. And I think that's as, as we start to emerge, as cash flow starts to, to improve for, for our clients and so forth. Yeah. I think that uh, that's really going to show pretty heavily to, well, I, these capabilities where I thought they weren't that important before are absolutely mission critical for us going forward. Yeah, agree. I'll, I'll definitely echo the, the simplification mantra for everything, especially merchandising, where they can take steps out, where they can shorten their calendar and just take activities away that, that aren't really adding a lot of value to the, the process. Communication, especially to the stores, is important. I think a lot of people were worried about everything that they were loading up on the stores to get ready to reopen. You know, everything from you know, cleanliness and spacing and signage and everything like that. And, you know, some retailers had already done or have already done over the last several years some good things around how they communicate to the field, but others, it's still very manual. And I think the other piece there that people have to stay flexible on is is the aspect of making sure they don't look at their stores as, as all the same cookie cutter, because as we're seeing across different regions, different states, they all have different regulations, they all have different you know, processes and different demands hitting them. So just like, you know, a merchant and supply chain and others will look at stores in terms of clusters based on attributes, et cetera, they've got to be able to look, look at it that way relative to what's happening uh, just with the, the rolling, uh, both reopening as well as reclosing uh, that, that's happening. Yeah, good call-outs definitely on the uh, communication. You know, if you're expecting a, uh, a PC in the back of a store to be the, the primary mechanism, I mean, having the ability to communicate to these store managers and their team virtually is really, really important. And, you know, getting those messages across, especially, you know, the fact that uh, you've got to train people on new processes that are not necessarily easy, you know, as relates to, to some of, you know, what these, what these capabilities uh, do. Like, you know, again, buy online, pick up in store. Now, all of a sudden, I go from being a sales associate that helps a customer who's in the store to being a picker, like I'm in a distribution center, and much different mindset and a much different way of, of, of working, for sure. Yeah, I think people are really going to learn through this. I mean, we've seen a fair amount of our clients, you know, experience how much of these foundational processes are important, right, that they maybe not spent so much time on in the last couple years and they the shiny new objects as it comes to omnichannel and bopus but they start to realize that some of the foundational things are manual and did not allow them to pivot as quickly as they wanted to whether it's a communication standpoint whether it's store operations or just merchandising and making financial decisions if those things kind of got pushed by the wayside and their teams are having to spend hours just getting to a simple answer, I think people are going to realize that those investments, they kind of have to go backwards just a little bit to make sure that that foundation is shored up. If anything is coming out of this, it's, you know, nothing's off the table and everything's got to be evaluated. The order may change on when everyone has to start to look at certain things, but really everybody's got to kind of dig deep and realize that over the past years there's been some things that have been neglected that they have to pay attention to now yeah the other thing i'll say is you know look it's just like with any other major time of disruption whether it's a recession or or anything 
you know, that's the time to really look at, at opportunities. Where where can you find some ways to innovate? Where you can you, as Trisha said, where can you pivot and just look at your business completely differently? Both how you're, how, you know, what you're selling from a product standpoint, uh, how you're interacting with your consumer, how you're marketing, uh, what you're doing in the store, what the experience looks like. Um, there's, there's all kinds of opportunities to do things, you know, radically different. At the same time, I would say, even with everything we've talked about, all the leading practices, things that have changed, retail fundamentals still apply. You know, it's still about the product. It's still about the customer experience. You still have to look at pricing, pricing life cycle, and you still have to look at inventory productivity. Those, those things simply don't change. Agreed. Excellent. Well, thank you all for your time today. We're going to wrap this up and look forward to talking about some longer term inventory strategies that you might take kind of post COVID-19, post this pandemic as we continue to evolve. But what are some more strategic inventory things that retailers and consumer brands will have to look at? Well, we promised to leave our listeners with two to three pieces of pragmatic advice in each podcast. But if you've worked with the Parker Avery Group, you know we've got a team of overachievers in the best and yet most humble way. As I reviewed today's discussion, I filtered out about five key messages. One, focus on being nimble and breaking down barriers of yesterday so you can pivot as needed, like a small business. Two, Consider SKU rationalization and ensure visibility and access to your inventory, wherever it may be, to ensure it's available for your customers where they need it and to lower your risk. Three, strive for increased collaboration across your organization. Break down old silos and get everyone working towards common goals and with a common demand signal. Rethink those KPIs that may no longer be driving behaviors and decisions that you need and hold people accountable. Four, improve communications to your stores. With things changing so quickly, old methods are likely not nearly effective as you need them to be. And lastly, bring a focus back to basic retail block and tackling because these fundamental components are the foundation you need to ensure newer efforts are executed well. Thank you for listening. We do hope you found value in this podcast. If you would like to learn more about the Parker Avery Group or anything we discussed today, please visit us at www.parkeravery.com or join our discussion on LinkedIn.